Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Jonah. Uh, before we get to the show, uh, I wanted to let you know that the Dispatch is now offering you a chance to experience a full membership for the next 30 days risk-free. There's a lot of information chaos out there, and with the Biden administration on the move, Democrats in charge on the Hill, and Republicans going through a wholesale realignment, the dispatch is here to help you make sense of what's really important and what's worth your time. During this 30-day trial, you'll have access to member-only editions of all our dispatch newsletters, including my own, David's, Sarah's, um, and of course, uh, so much more. Plus, you'll be able to join our members-only Dispatch Live virtual gatherings, which are always a hoot, even when I'm sober, which is rare. It's our sincere hope that you find a Dispatch membership to be valuable and something worth sticking with after the 30-day trial. If you don't, you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, go to thedispatch.com slash free30. That's thedispatch.com forward slash F-R-E-E and the number 30. Thedispatch.com slash free 30. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, it's a little earlier than usual in the day for me to record, but this was necessary so that I could land one of my favorite guests once again. Um, she is uh, a bon vivant, um, a, I don't know what her title is these days at Real Clear Politics. What is your title at Real Clear Politics? It doesn't matter, but I'm... Associate editor and economist. associate editor. Yeah, I knew it was something like that. Um, um, uh, she's basically the gal Friday of this podcast and uh, <laughs> one of my favorite people in the world. A.B. Stoddard, welcome back to The Redmond. Jonah, it's great to be with you and your audience again. And I just want to um, start with a little disclaimer that uh, I did bring a puppy home a week ago, which is basically um, the equivalent of a mild lobotomy. It's temporary, but, um, this morning, and I know we'll get to details later, uh, English is just my second language. So everyone bear with me. So without over disclosing to the audience details that are far less adorable, but, um, uh, I've had two sick dogs and I had a nasty bout of diverticulitis that I'm just getting over on antibiotics. So, um, adding short columns of single digit numbers is a challenge for me as well. I and, thought uh, that Pippa was talking about her concern yeah. for you. I was a little worried. Okay. So, well, be uh, well. he'll, he'll quickly. So everyone needs the grade on a curve today. Yes, if either yes. of us say anything wrong, 
it's not because we aren't geniuses. It's just because we're under the weather or we're tired. Um, and yes, uh, for listeners who, for that weird, weird sub niche category of my listeners who don't like the dog talk, um, out of deference to you, we're going to leave it to the end. And that way, you know, once we start talking about dogs, we're not going to switch back and talk about like, uh, omnibus, uh, budget bills or, um, term limits for Congress. We're stuck on dogs once we start talking about dogs. And for those of you who love the dog talk, this is an incentive to listen through the rank punditry until we get to the dogs. So it's a win-win for everybody. Um, so where to begin? We're recording this on Tuesday morning. Tomorrow is, if I get this right, is Wednesday, which means that that's when Biden is going to do his, uh, it's not the state of the union because you don't have a state of the union in the first term, your first year. It's an address to the nation. And it's, this is also the hundred day mark on Friday, um, where people, and as I run in the LA times, the first hundred days thing is an utter BS pseudo event contrivance that nonetheless is deeply woven into the traditions of the beltway because it allows us to have a conversation about how good the president has done, how good a start the president has had. So with all that said, um, what do you think of Biden's first hundred days? Well, um, I, looking at the polling, uh, which is remarkably durable uh, in a, such a polarized country and usually plunges downward by that 100-day mark, I'm going to give him sort of a strong B+. Plus. I am very impressed. I am surprised by their ability to shrewdly navigate the progressive left and all of the angst going on there um, with just the handling of the daily duties of a brand new presidency in a pandemic when you're trying to stabilize the economy. Just think about how quiet that group of people has been. Bernie Sanders um, rejecting um, Congresswoman Tlaib's tweet outright last week saying she wanted to defund the police. He is quiet. He is happy. There's a lot of care and feeding going on. And so I think actually the only thing that has surprised me once I decided they were a pretty shrewd lot um, of people was the crisis at the border, an entirely foreseeable self-inflicted wound that they would have known about a year ago, let alone in December in the transition, knowing that uh, these surges um, happen every spring and there's nothing you can do about it um, except to continue tamping down. So I think for Biden, the fact that he did this to himself gave himself a political liability that is going to be a gift to Republicans in the midterms, that is going to irritate the center of the electorate, the median voter who does not want more chaos at the border, thinks that this country is broke, knows this country is still sick with, according to the dispatch, more than 48,000 new cases yesterday of coronavirus. This is just something that I thought that they would work to avoid. And so that to me seems really surprising considering all the other political minefields. I think they've navigated really well. There are serious conversations behind the scenes going on every day about the filibuster, um, whether or not he's a one-term president, the midterms, you know, what, what they're, they're likely to lose the House, as you know, Jonah, potentially before 
the midterm election, just on vacancies and special elections alone. There's a lot of strife. And they do a really good job of keeping everything running really smoothly and keeping everybody quiet and in the tent. And so, again, that would be my only criticism, but it's a strong one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, I got ideological criticism about the yin yang. I mean, I, I, I think there are problems with things that they're doing and all that. I agree with you about the border thing. I, I think it's even more outrageous or more not outrageous. It is more. Uh, uh, negligent of them because even if, I mean, take the hyperbole of the hardcore Trump fans and discount it by a rate of 75%, there is still more than a grain of truth that when Biden campaigned about how he was going to lift these Trump policies at the border, that not only would there be a spring surge, there would also be a post-Trump surge or a Biden surge, and they should have anticipated that, you know, I mean, because having been in the Obama administration, Biden remembers that rhetoric from Washington actually affects how many it doesn't, it doesn't attract all of them are illegal immigrants, but the percentage of them increases or decreases based upon incentives and signals that you send. And they knew this and they didn't plan for it. I, I mean, I agree with that part, I guess. All right. So I, I'm of two minds about this or, or of several minds about this. I think the last time you were on, we talked about how, whether Biden was going to be Biden presidency would be like, the first part, the first two years of the Johnson administration or the last two years of the Johnson administration. Insofar as the first two years, Johnson got an incredible amount done, right? You know, the Civil Rights Act, the, the, the uh, bulk of the Great Society stuff, war on poverty. Um, and then by the end, he was such a beaten guy that he was humiliated in the New Hampshire primary and didn't even run for re-election in 68. And I, I still think sort of both analogies could end up being right. Um, uh, but, you know, so Ramesh makes this case and people with your bingo cards now gets a drink because um, I mentioned Ramesh, uh, that all of this talk about how this signals this new grand progressive era misses the fact that all Biden has really proven so far. And I'm not saying that you're making that case, but um, all that Biden's really proven so far is that He's able to spend lots of money that gives lots of money to Americans and he's able to pass. Yeah, well, he hasn't passed it yet, but he's, he's able to push infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. But the, the idea that Biden seems, Biden seems to be sold on this idea that he's the next FDR. Axios has this piece about how he's going to you know, keep pushing this FDR analogy and keep swinging for the fences. And I have to wonder whether or not, if he keeps doing that, at some point, people are going to say, you know, as you and I argued back in the day, you know, Biden's biggest advantage running for president was like this return to normalcy thing of like being a moderate. And I get that he's kind of like a Pete Buttigieg, like he's kind of like Pete Buttigieg's grandpa in that he sounds moderate, but the agenda is actually pretty relentlessly partisan. And I think one of the reasons why the base is staying quiet is because they're mostly getting what they want so far. And I just don't know if that's sustainable. I mean, like, like the first hundred days is a nice benchmark, but it's almost meaningless in terms of how the actual presidency turns out. And I don't know that he can keep swinging for the fences this way um, while only focusing because there's no there's no massively progressive legislation that 
fits his rule of what bipartisanship means, which is popular with Republican voters, just not popular in Washington. At some point, if he tries to do guns, China, any of those kinds of things, that formula kind of blows up on him. And so I, I kind of feel this is a bit of a sugar high. And I also kind of feel like I'm rambling. So take make of that what you will. <laughs> well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, uh, first of all, I wasn't commenting from an ideological perspective and weighing in. I'm just sort of handicapping the, the politics, you know, the political ability of his team. And his team is really important because Biden's like 4,000 years old and like just trying to concentrate on couple things at a time and answering every single phone call from his grandchildren and talking to Hunter six times a day. So, you know, I, I really am impressed with the fact that the people shoring up this administration seem like pretty able people. Obviously, they were in office for eight years, so they know what they're doing. And that's why one of the reasons that Joe Biden's, uh, you know, got a lot of voters um, who might not have agreed with every single thing, just knowing that competence was coming back. Their political abilities, like I said, sort of surprised me that they were, I thought in the, in the general election campaign, like, oh, they're pretty good at this. But then um, we were just always sort of in the throes of Trump, you know, um, the Trump show. And once it was just focus on Biden, I, I was sort of surprised at how able they were to navigate this stuff. You are right. The progressives are getting a lot of like performative promising from Joe Biden. I think that's intentional. And I don't know that it's actually going to materialize and results. I still think it takes a lot of private care and feeding to keep people from posturing, um, getting the spotlight, keeping the spotlight, angling for future office, and on and on. I think that um, if you also look at just the fact that no one's talking about that, the, 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 not only I mentioned the fragile majority in the House, that they could literally lose from gerrymandering, from special elections, I mean, the, from, I'm sorry, redistricting special elections, vacancies, um, they're going to lose the House in 2022, and they know that. Nancy Pelosi is supposed to leave. We don't even know who the next Democratic leader is. I mean, there's so much going on below the surface. It's so incredibly volatile. And the fact that they're able to keep it quiet, I think, is extremely impressive because it's all problematic. Is Kamala Harris running for the nomination just three years from now? You know, it's there's so so much erupting that they're managing to, to bury. So um, I just wanted to throw that out there. I think that it's interesting. Um, I think, frankly, Biden fancies himself some kind of Lyndon Johnson figure who completely understands the Congress better than, you know, most people who've held, uh, who've been in the Oval Office and that he came in uh, not only promising that the fever was going to break about Republicans and we knew that he was wrong and we knew that wasn't going to happen, but that at least his mastery of the process of legislative battles of, of the chamber, um, of the whole Congress, but particularly the Senate and his longstanding relationship with McConnell, even if it's not warm and fuzzy, was going to enable him to, to really get a hold of things pretty quickly. Um, both the pull from the left and the resistance from the right, I think, and, and looking at the sober data uh, made him realize I'm going to go for broke. Now he can couch it. He can have meetings with historians and couch it as I want to be a transformational, you know, historical figure. But actually, it's just sort of a political necessity. Because when I talk to Democrats, they've already admitted we're going to lose the House. So we're going to lose even if we don't do these things. So why not just do them to either A, get some of them across the finish line if Joe Manchin allows it, some things. It's not going to be the bulk of what they proposed. And they know that. Second thing, motivate some voters next year. I don't think they're going to be able to, to effectively motivate their voters next year because 
they think their voters are black and brown and gave them Joe Biden the presidency. I think Republican voters and independents gave Joe Biden the presidency. Um, so, and I think that they lost, if you know, you, you've looked at David Shore's data, I've looked at it. Um, we know that, that Democrats lost some non-white working class voters on issues like defunding the police and that, um, you know, refusing to do police reform because uh, 10 Republicans want to vote for a modified version in the Senate, I think is really going to be a problem turning out their voters next year, even if they think, oh, we're going to keep them galvanized. So I don't, I don't know that these two years are going to be very successful, Joe Biden, but I do see why he has to take, he has decided that he has to, he's made the political calculation that he has to take this posture. The go for broke, promise everybody everything, full speed ahead. And he knows Joe Manchin's going to stop it all or Mitch McConnell or whatever, but he has to just proceed for those, for those two reasons. He doesn't think he's going to run for a second term and he wants personally to go for broke. And then he thinks the party has no choice. So you you think for sure he's not going to run for a second term? Well, people like Ron Brownstein, who are smarter than I am, say that Joe Biden has to run for a second term because there's no hope of victory without him. Uh, I think that's probably I think that's probably correct. I don't I just I know that Joe Biden. I mean, I don't know what it feels like to wake up every morning worried about a son who's completely addicted and could go off the rails. Uh, and, and, and you have to talk to him three times a day and his sponsor has to talk to him three times a day. And you have grandchildren who lost their dad a few years ago to cancer. I mean, when I think about his age combined with his emotional life and the, the, the grueling, the rigorousness of, of the presidency, I I don't, I don't know if he's going to be up for a second term. I mean, again, these are things I'm mentioning that are not talked about a lot, but that's Joe Biden's day. You and I don't have to face that when we wake up every morning. So do you know that he's, I mean, like, do you know that he's on the phone all the time with Hunter? Has that been reported? I haven't seen that. I tend, there was I, a recent I tend story not to read about stories about Hunter. Hunter, but, they, they uh, talk, Hunter talks to his sponsor three times a day. He talks to his dad at least once or twice. He talks to him every night before Hunter goes to sleep. He talks to his dad. Right. Yeah. No, look, I mean, as and I'm not revealing any state secrets, I saw what my brother's addictions did to my dad. I mean, it took years off my dad's life and. Um, and we as parents can just imagine this. I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah. it's just it's on his neck all day long. He's just um, full of love, but worried sick. Um, and so I think that uh, if you saw all the gray hairs that George W. Bush and uh, Obama got in their first four years, uh, I'm just wondering um, how long can he can he go? But at the same time, I think that Joe Biden is not entirely confident the Democratic Party can proceed in 2024 with Kamala Harris as the nominee. Yeah, I think I, I still think that was one of the worst picks. I mean, I, I, there were other women and there were other black women that he could have picked that I think would have been better. Um, Who would you uh, have recommended? Well, I, if, if, if the criteria was at first just a woman, which it was for a long time before it became had to be an African-American woman. I still think Klobuchar made a lot more sense. Um, if you're, if you, if if you, if you think as both of us do that, the key demographic for Biden in 2020 was uh, the marginal suburban mom, uh, regardless of race, but you know the average, the middle class suburban mom type 
um, in that kind of cluster of demographics, um, uh, then she just made a lot more sense. I think she also turned, she was less likely to galvanize, um, the other side. There's something about Kamala Harris that, and I don't, I don't, I'm sure for some people it's a racial thing. She's just annoying to a lot of people. The laugh, the, you know, the, there's something about her that is just, I think, um, that I just don't think Klobuchar had. Um, I think it would be really interesting right now if Val Demings were the vice president of the United States amidst all the George Floyd stuff. Um, she was my bitch. Yeah. I remember, I think I remember that, you know, because being able to be a reasonable defender of the police while condemning bad actions um, would be, you know, uh, I think would be better, you know. Um, anyway, so where were we on this? Um, you can tell we're just both tired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, all right. So you, you as you know, because you're a listener of the remnant and you were actually a closer student of Congress than I am by several orders of magnitude. Here's my macro problem with all of this. And, um, it's, it, it, I mean, what you're describing, I think is right on the sort of the, the punditry. Um, but there's, there's still the collective action problem, right? You have a president of the United States come in on the narrowest majority, almost in uh, what's in the house since what Rutherby Rutherford B Hayes and the narrowest in the Senate since the first Bush, since George W. Bush's first term, um, which is to say they don't have a majority in the Senate without the vice president breaking a tie. Right. And the majority of their majority in the Senate hinges on, Pat Leahy's health, you know, and all of these sorts of things. And, and they only won the Senate in the first place because Trump screwed up Georgia and that the Republicans should have won at least one of those seats in Georgia were it not for what Trump and the stop to steal nonsense did. And so you have as facts on the ground, institutionally, basically a deadlocked country. And, um, since one side has to be in the majority by the rules, you know, it's the Democrats, but by the, literally the slimmest, almost slimmest possible margin. And Biden's takes from that. Okay. I'm going to swing for the fences and, uh, maybe not entirely on policy, though spending four five, six trillion dollars is pretty big on the policy. Um, but rhetorically even more so. And I'm going to convince my people that we have history the winds of history at our back. We are owed all of these victories. The only thing that's standing in our way is the quote unquote Jim Crow filibuster and all of this nonsense. And, um, and that is a recipe for the other party coming in and doing the exact same thing from the other direction. And rather than have, um, it's, it's, rather than have these wave elections trading back and forth because the middle gets disgusted with the overreach of both parties. And so it takes turns punishing the other party by joining the other party. Um, we're going to have this seesawing thing, which heightens everybody's anger, heightens everybody's sense that we should be living in a parliamentary democracy and we should get everything we want the second we win and heightens the sense that, um, uh, you know, 
that bipartisanship is a moral failure. Um, and when I say bipartisanship, I don't mean like bipartisanship is inherently better. I just mean that the system works better for social peace reasons if you have an institutionalized policy of taking half a loaf and moving incrementally and um, muddling through, as Benjamin Disraeli might say. And so what Biden is doing, even if you like his policies, I'm not saying you like his policies or don't like his policies, but as a general proposition, even if you like what he's doing and you like his tone, which I have to admit, I kind of do compared to what we've had for the last four years, um, he's still part of the problem. And it's still part of the general dysfunction of Washington that he is contributing to rather than fixing, which was part, I think, if we can talk about mandates, was part of his real mandate was to make things more sane. He's just sounding more sane while institutionally making things crazier. What do you think of that? Okay, well, a couple of things. I do want to step back and say that I do think African-Americans delivered the Senate, quote, majority, because they really um, did turn out in Georgia I mean, the, as you said, benefited by Trump really screwing the Republicans over in those two runoffs. I just think November 7th or November 3rd, uh, Biden wins because of um, Republicans who defected and voted for him. And you look at the, the Delta, 45,000 votes in three or four states, smaller than the, than the Trump victory over Hillary. Um, I just don't think that's because of um, you know, the diverse coalitions, Democratic Party. I think those were independents and Republicans literally making the difference. The Senate majority is a different story. So he becomes president in November and he's like, okay, this is what I thought. Mitch McConnell's going to be the majority leader. Of course, the Republicans are going to win those runoffs and um, I'm going to have divided government. And then all of a sudden he finds himself, and I think we discussed this back then, like, did he want the Senate majority, quote unquote? Probably not. So they promised these voters the moon. You're going to get this number of checks, this amount in your checks. You're going to get this. You're going to get that. We're going to change the world. We have the Senate majority, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, all this horse crap that doesn't take into the, to the equation, the Senate filibuster or any of, the, any of these mathematical realities. And that's when I think things changed. Um, I'm not saying that Joe Biden wasn't going to do this, but he, they definitely had to recalibrate. Um, by getting that majority, they'd not planned on it. They didn't foresee it, and I think it's a I think it's a burden because it's not truly a majority. The way I like to describe it is that they they preside over the Senate. They have more people on committees. They get that tie breaking vote for this and that. They're not going to get it for climate. They're not. Well, I guess climate's going to be driven by infrastructure. They could push that through on reconciliation. They can't do um, HR one. They can't do uh, gun fixes. They can't do police reform. I mean, they, they can't do the John Lewis, but they can't do a lot of things through reconciliation um, without blowing up the filibuster. And I, I think J Joe Biden is perfectly happy that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are not going to let him blow up the filibuster. Um, so that's a problem for another day down the road. But uh, again, I think that a lot of the posturing, a lot of the language, a lot of the... Um, throw up big bills, um, is a way to, you know, it's care and feeding of the base and, and, um, trying to keep the party energized and not dispirited. But, um, and remember a lot of Americans don't know what a midterm election is. And a lot of democratic voters aren't never turn out in democratic elections. And, jo and Barack Obama and Joe Biden found that out in 2010 and 2014, they're not coming out next year. And so, um, I, I just think that 
they're still dealing with they're just dealing with a real pent up demand that they're trying to assuage through, like I said, rhetoric and stuff. I think he knows damn well he's not going to get um, all this stuff through, but he sure wants to look like he tried. And he can always use um, Republicans as a foil to his base, saying, you know, they're not really interested in working with me. To the next step on the sort of a liberal escalation of norm busting and everything. Uh, the problem in he, he's facing now is the party is watching from the from the big lie to January 6th to, to now the actual um, attempts across the country to um, implement these voting restrictions. And in some places, it's like, you know, we know Georgia is not as dire as the Democrats describe, but it is certainly... Um, not an effort to expand the right to vote, <laughs> just not an effort to make it easier, these Republican bills across the country. And so when you look at the, the Democratic Party is, is, is saying we face an existential threat because a minority party can have control. They represent, you know, 36% of the country in the Senate or whatever the number is, and they have a stranglehold over this process and they will for years to come particularly if we don't win in 2022 or 2024, we could become a permanent minority. And so they're, they are, they're actually describing this as, I mean, you and I have watched these power shifts and we know how um, corrupting, corrosive they are. They make the, the, the voters more angry. They get nothing done. And, um, and it's a vicious cycle. And, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're eating the results of that today, but I think there is a new problem, which is the, um, the, the peaceful transfer of power and, and the threat to elections that the Democrats are now pressuring, um, the Biden administration over. And I do think that's part of the calculus, not just I want to get in. I want to promise them the moon. I want to grab everything, you know, the way that I, I want everything exactly how I want it. And then I'm going to overreach and then the electorate's going to be pissed and volatile and swing to the other party and, and punish us in the next election. I think now we have this new awful layer that makes it so much worse. Okay. Let me paint a hypothetical for you. What would happen to Joe Biden's presidency if he just flatly said, he picked his moment, waited for someone to say something really dumb about defunding the police, okay? Or um, uh, I don't know, seizing the means of production or liquidating the kulaks or, you know, I mean, there, there's plenty of that kind of stuff coming out of Democrats and on almost, on the, on the fringy parts of the Democrats on an almost daily basis. And Biden said, Shut up. You know, this is not the Democratic Party. This is not who we are. We're not a socialist party. We're not, you know, cops and firemen. They're the backbone of communities. And while there are abuses, um, they are not modern day slave patrols. And we should stop talking about them that way. And just pulled a generic, well-aimed, well-timed, seemingly spontaneous, but actually well-planned um, sister soldier moment that just that brought through a brushback pitch across the base of the party, not so much to get them to shut up, although getting them to shut up about that stuff would be useful for Democrats, but also to signal to Republicans that he's not part of them because that was a big part of his advantage running 
was that he was signaling every now and then that he, he wasn't a socialist. He wasn't Bernie. I haven't seen almost any of that kind of assertive signaling. There's a lot of passive signaling along those lines, but there's things he doesn't say and that kind of thing. Um, and I thought his actual defense of the infrastructure stuff, talking about like, you know, our clean water pipes, not infrastructure, was actually very, very good. But it seems to me like f for the health, the long-term health of the Democratic Party, because the average, the actual the average Democratic voter is much more conservative than anybody you see in the in nine out of 10 times as a Democratic activist or Democratic congressman on MSNBC. I mean, the, the data is settled on that. Um, why not speak up just a teensy, teensy bit for that slice of, for the Tim Ryan slice of the party? Would you really lose so many Democrats that it wouldn't be made up for, for the, the kind of independents and moderate Democrats who would be reassured by it? I mean, what, what, why, I understand why Trump was not capable of doing that stuff because he didn't have that kind of grasp on the politics, but Bush did that kind of stuff from time to time. And Obama, well, Obama sometimes did. Um, uh, and, and Clinton certainly did. I mean, he took a while to get his sea legs, but he really did that kind of stuff. Why is that not part of the equation for Democrats anymore? Well, I sure wish it was because as you and I, uh, agree when, uh, as, as one party becomes increasingly bat crazy, it makes the other party more bat crazy. And so right now, I am hoping for some stasis and sanity out of a Biden presidency just to stabilize the constitutional order here and, and the health of the Republic. His, what's so interesting about what you just said, I wrote about police reform for today and how the left is not going to accept a bipartisan bill. And they really can't face the midterms without a bill on police reform, but then, you know, they can't, they're not going to take half a loaf. And, and the system, as you said, is dependent on taking half a loaf. And so this defund the police thing so worries Joe Biden. And he, I don't know if you know this, but he was uh, recorded in a conversation in December saying Republicans killed us on this issue across the country. Jim Clyburn goes on TV and says this and says, <clears throat> this issue is destroying the party. It's got to stop. <clears throat> and so when Rashida Tlaib tweets that last week. They know it's not only a part of Republican fundraising letters now, but that it'll be part of advertisements next year uh, to campaign against Democrats in the midterm. So they know this, and this is an ongoing discussion about, they know exactly what David Shore found and they know exactly what is going to kill them. And they know from, as you point out, from Joe Biden's primary campaign, that the bulk of his support came from moderate voters and older African-American voters who don't know what the Hyde Amendment is, don't give a crap that he switched his position on it, um, don't, uh, are not, you know, sitting around worried about how woke he is uh, and um, are church-going, socially conservative voters, by and large, who turn out more and than And also are pro-police. I mean, I'm not saying yes, they're wildly yes. pro-police, but the polling and on this why, has been and, and that's why Jim Clyburn continues to point that out, um, that they're pro-police, they just want better recruiting and training, and there are good cops everywhere, and we need the police. Um, you are right. I mean, I, so I'm just saying this is, this is they agree with you on on 
the salience, the argument, they're just not going out and making it and have and taking that political swing and 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 saying, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna strike back at you to to speak to the middle, to speak to Republicans and and to speak to you to say, you know, we know where the numbers are and we know that this kind of talk is gonna lose us voters. Um maybe they're doing that privately, begging, you know, the squad not to tweet crap about police reform in the next couple of weeks and months. I don't know. They do a lot privately. But uh, they certainly know it's a liability for them. And, and I think he's well positioned to, to do any of the kind of, you know, sister soldier on, on a lot of topics um, that, that, that you're suggesting. And, and you saw that last year. Obama did try to say, we can't get everything we want. And this kind of, you know, this kind of raw anger about getting everything we want sets us back. I mean, you know, he was he was kind of pushing back on Elizabeth Warren early in the primary when it looked like she was really hot. Anyway, um, I think he should do it. Um, maybe he will later. Maybe he's picking his moments. Uh, I think that, you know, you, you think you know what you're doing and then the rhythm of, of what you thought the president's presidency would be surprises you. And I think that the, you know, the, the volatility in the base, just since the Derek Chauvin trial, you see person after person saying black and brown voters delivered this presidency to Joe Biden and he owes you know, them this. And mathematically, uh, you know, you and I don't think that's entirely true, but that's, you know, they're feeling a lot of that pressure and they're saying these voters are not going to turn out next year. I would posit they're not going to turn out anyway, but, but it is, um, it it is a really strange, uh, it's it's strange to watch him because uh, I think he has a real opportunity to keep a lot of the Um, voters in the middle that he got in 2020, in 2022. He has a better chance of retaining them because you look at his polling. They like like his tone. They think he's competent. They think he's trying. He's non-offensive. Everything seems orderly. You know, the economy is going to start to grow again. I think he has a much better opportunity to to keep more of those voters next year than to keep... um, the, the, the young, diverse uh, sector of his coalition energized. And so I think he should be speaking to them. But so far, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to switch to the Republicans in a second. But I mean, I, I, I increasingly think that the, one of the biggest problems that Democrats have is that they, and I have to say Republicans too, this is a problem with politicians, is that it's sort of like Plato's cave. The only shadows they see on the wall are that, people they see on cable television that they read on the op-ed pages. I'm sorry, we're not allowed to call it op-ed pages apparently anymore, but you know what I'm saying? Um, guest essays. Guest, the guest essay pages. Um, and, uh, you know, so when, like you say that, you know, the congressional black talk caucus crowd says black and brown voters delivered. Um, and so therefore you owe us this policy. There's a stolen base there that the policies that black and brown voters want are the things that these activists are proposing. And I just don't think there's the connective tissue there. It's sort of like, you know, the, when Elizabeth Warren would constantly talk, um, about the, the vital issue of, of, I don't know, black trans rights or, you know, that kind of thing, regardless of what you think about trans rights or black trans rights or what the difference between the two are or whatever, the average South Carolina, African-American voter, that is not foremost in their minds. And it's, you know, the same thing with the, the you know, call it, referring to people as Latinx 
that is a shibboleth that the elite crowd from Ivy League schools on the East Coast hear and understand, but it actually doesn't reach, doesn't appeal to actual voters. And that just seems to me you could, you know, the, the communities that need good policing the most are the obvious, are, are disproportionately black and brown communities. And like the voting going back, I mean, the polling going back a year and a half shows that, that the vast majority of Hispanics and African-Americans want the same amount of policing or more. And the amount that want less policing is very small. And the amount that want no policing is almost zero. And calling out the sort of activist wing for not actually representing the interests of their own voters seems to me like a, a moral obligation, but B, I just don't, I don't personally see like it's that bad politics. And, um, and the thing that if I were Biden, I would be worrying about is the crime numbers are actually really starting to look disturbing. Like, I mean, we're starting from a very low base. So the increases look very, very high and very disturbing. But if those increases are sustained over any significant period of time, we're going to be talking about seeing, you know, like consistently high murder rates, homicide rates, carjacking rates that we haven't seen in decades. And if you're on the books talking favorably about defund the police in that context, no one is going to say, well, we didn't know that the crime was going to be back bad back then. This thing could sneak up on you very quickly. And, you know, Democrats historically do not do well when they sound like they're, they're anti-police and anti-law and order when there are actual serious crime waves. And uh, we're not there yet, but it's coming. I mean, the, the trend lines are really, really bad in a lot of these places. And that, that'll freak out suburban voters who were attracted to Biden pretty bad, particularly in, in midterm elections. Anyway. Also, I just want to um, use a woke term. Um, I, I'm decided that I'm, um, I'm non-binary in political debates. And I would like to push this, this concept, which is the binary kills us. Why doesn't Joe Biden stand up and say, so many Americans believe the police need to regain social trust. Most of us do. Most of us also trust the police, by and large. You can look at the polling. This is all, it all bears out in the numbers. Most of us, it's now, I saw yesterday, ABC News, Washington Post, 63% of Americans believe that, um, that Black Americans don't receive the same treatment in the criminal justice system and at the hands of law enforcement that white Americans do. I mean, this is more than six in 10 Americans. He can speak to all this overlap and say, this is not a binary issue. You're not pro-cop or anti-cop just because you think that some of these rules could be changed and that some of that people need to be able in this country to survive being stopped for a traffic violation and, and live to see the, the following day. That, they, that the police are there to protect and serve, but there are, are plenty of good cops we're not gonna paint with this broad brush and there's a way to increase accountability. Joe Biden once received the support of the police unions, then last you know, year he didn't. But there's a way back for him to just generally, even before we're down to like an actual bill, which I don't think Tim Scott and Karen Bass and Cory Booker, so unfortunately and tragically, because I think it would be the best thing for the country if there was a bipartisan police reform bill, can actually produce. But even he could jump in now before there was any like real meat on the bones um, and and just have a discussion and, and maybe Wednesday's the opportunity um, to say we, we oh, most of us are in the middle on this issue uh, and there's a way forward on this issue because we, we share, you know, common concerns. 
And, and just that alone, which is just like a rhetorical wet kiss is, is just worth doing. Like what you're not going to pay a price for that. And it's going to speak to that, you know, Minnesota mom who lives outside of areas that have been ravaged by riots. And, and she has those two dual concerns and she's going to say, you know, he's speaking for me. Yeah. All right. So, um, I agree with that. It has the advantage of being true, right? I mean, like the best politics are the ones where it is simultaneously in your political advantage and accurate and good policy. And <laughs> alas, those are few and far between these days, but they do happen from time to time. And non-binary. Non-binary. Yeah, well, look, I mean, everything, you know, all poisons are determined by the dose, which means most things are a spectrum, not a on-off switch. And I agree with that entirely. All right, so let's talk about the Republicans for a little bit. I held off asking about that, first of all, because, you know, Biden's about to do his spiel, and we're going to do a dispatch live, listeners, by the way, on on before, I believe it's right before for a little bit, and then right after Biden's address, so tune in for that if you remember. Um, but um, also, we're going to have Robert Draper on, on Thursday, and he just did that big piece about uh, uh, Liz Cheney um, for the New York Times. Um, so I'm going to cover some of this with him as well. But first question is, uh, do you think that Kevin McCarthy, like I, I very rarely do I like to resort to theories that require Kevin McCarthy being a very sophisticated thinker, but, uh, <laughs> let's just, just entertain it for the moment. Um, is it possible that Kevin McCarthy is actually happy to have Liz Cheney doing her anti-Trump spiel because it, it keeps two streams of revenue coming into the GOP and of two streams of support, the, the, the sort of traditional Cheney Bush wing pouring money into her and she can ask for help for specific races and whatnot. And the pro-Trump side um, gets money from McCarthy and the rest of his team is, is that possibly what's going on? Or is Liz Cheney just driving McCarthy crazy and he doesn't know what to do about it? That is so fascinating. Yes, your premise requires some savvy and sophistication on the part of Kevin McCarthy that is really hard to um, just uh, assume. Uh, I am blown, as the kids say, by <laughs> Draper's piece on McCarthy coming out 24 hours before um Mark Leibovich's piece on uh, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, Draper on Cheney Ke and uh, Mark Leibovich on Kevin McCarthy. Uh, totally unbelievable where Kevin McCarthy has diarrhea of the mouth and says, Trump's anger goes up and down. Some days he's mad at me. Some days I call him and he's mad at other people. And this this piece isn't going to all be all about Trump, is it? Like, he's just lives in fear. He has people um, like McHenry on the record, you know, friends saying it was a traumatic time for Kevin, the transition, and that he was quietly trying to tell Trump to stop the big lie and all this crap. So you can see that he is trying to get two messages out. I mean, he shouldn't have had Mark Leibovich driving around with him in Iowa and been spilling the beans. So that's sort of interesting and complicated and like un-Kevin McCarthy-like. But uh, there's a piece in Politico this morning, and I haven't been able to read the whole thing, uh, but they cited in playbook where um, they sit down with Cheney and McCarthy and McCarthy is blunt about the fact that she is talking um, so much out of school. And he says, 
uh, there's an expression, leadership eats last. And he's that he he is on the record saying that he's encouraged her to talk inside the tent more and not outside. And the reporter says, well, what do you think of the results? And he said, well, what do you think? I think the results speak for themselves. So um, it's really interesting that that's now like on display. And I think that if I'm right, we'll see what happens in Orlando or wherever they are in Florida for their conference. But at the outside of their house conference, they've not been going to the same um, uh, scrum at the mics. So one sometimes she's not there and he's there with Scalise and sometimes she's there with Scalise and he's not because they don't want to take questions about their relationship. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, publicly at the conference. But um, I think that he should do what you're what you've you know articulated, which is sort of do both. He was forced to put that tweet out after the America First caucus um, eruption. Um, and so, you know, he's he's he has like a a vein or artery or two of sanity in there. But um, I don't know. He just wants the speakership so badly. I think the the um, the long leash he's given Gosar and a bunch of those people and his just general instincts make me wonder. But um, thank God Liz Cheney's there. Yeah. So look, Liz Cheney, I am happy to ascribe long-term strategic thinking to, which is not to say that she, she's not, ta- I'm not saying that she's taking this position out of some like 20 year plan to be president or anything like that. I'm just saying that, that I think she's doing, this is one of these cases where doing what's right may also be smart, but we don't know yet if she can pull it off. Um, uh, I thought the Draper piece was fascinating. I love, I love the guy saying, you know, it's like watching your girlfriend cheering for the other team in the stands thing, which I just, uh, chef's kiss. That was just so great. I mean, um, uh, you know, and, uh, but the thing is, it is not at all clear to me, you know, like, I think I'm on safe ground here. Donald Trump tends to hold grudges. And when he doesn't get what he wants, even if he's got a good relationship now, when he doesn't get what he wants from somebody. He reaches back in time to the last thing that offended them, that the person did that offended them. And he uses that as an excuse to do whatever he wants. I, it does not seem obvious to me that if Kevin McCarthy, if, if the Republicans do narrowly get back the house because of, as you say, retirements or, you know, whatever, even before 2022, and it certainly looks like they'll get it after 2022. It's not obvious to me that Trump will back Kevin McCarthy for, for speaker. Um, I don't know that. I mean, I guess McCarthy in his situation has no choice, but to do the Trump suck up thing. But the idea that it's definitely going to pay off, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can see Trump saying, give it to Scalise, right? I mean, I can see Trump saying and giving it to Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you know, um, or Jim Jordan or, Andy or Jim Biggs. Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, totally. I think you're, I think you're exactly right, Jonah. That's the beauty of the, um, slavish loyalty is that you always get your teeth kicked in no matter what. And, and your day will come. So Kevin McCarthy, I guess you're right. He has no choice, right. To, but to hope that he's going to be speaker, but Steve Bannon wants Trump to be speaker. Because the speaker doesn't have to be a member of the house. Right. 
<laughs> so, and, but look, I mean, in fairness, the one thing we know about Trump is he has a fine grasp of parliamentary procedure. <laughs> so uh, I think that would be fantastic. Yes, um, I, I do. I, I think you're right. I think that there is so much more to come on on the McCarthy. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's God knows what Trump is going to do to him because he's still mad at him. Yeah. And he's going to be mad about the Leibovich piece. Yeah, I haven't read their Leibovich. I just saw a little bit of it on TV today, but I, I still haven't read it. Um, okay, so I brought this up before. I brought it up with Dan Crenshaw. Um, I brought it up with somebody else. I can't remember who. Um, uh, my colleagues, Sarah and Steve, they interviewed uh, Mick Mulvaney a couple of weeks ago uh, for the Dispatch Friday podcast. And... Um, uh, and they asked him about the transformation of the House Freedom Caucus from these sort of Tea Party fiscal hawk types into uh, Trump throne sniffing sycophants. And um, uh, and his answer was one of these. I mean, he, he said lots of things that you listen to. And, wow, that sound that's interesting. That's persuasive. And then five minutes later, you're like. What did he say? <laughs> um, and um, uh, but his answer on the House Freedom Caucus came in the form of a story. And he says, early in the presidency, Trump said to him, "You know, Mick, am I going to have to worry about these House Freedom Caucus guys because you know they're like troublemakers and deficit guys and blah 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 blah." And and Mulvaney says, "No, Mr. President, um, I tell you what, they are going to be your biggest supporters, and I know it." And Trump is like, well, why? And he says, because before everything else, these guys are anti-establishment guys. And you're the anti-establishment president, and so they're going to get your back. And on the one hand, there's something like really kind of persuasive about that, right? On the, that, that, about the, psycholo the psychological insight into the House Freedom Caucus. On the other hand, what Mulvaney is saying is that these guys as an institution, they're individual guys who are at the House Freedom Caucus I got no problem with. But as an institution, you know, as represented by the Jim Jordan aesthetic, let's say, um, uh, they're jackasses. Because when push comes to shove, rather than actually, like it's one thing to be anti-establishment to get to your ends. Like if your ends are fiscal discipline and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's one thing. It's another thing to make the means, the ends, and say, really, at the end of the day, we're more about being troublemakers in anti-establishment than we are about accomplishing any of these principles that we said we believe in. And, and basically, Mulvaney was saying, look, at the end of the day, they're performative, not policy-driven. And, um, and so on the one hand, it's really persuasive when you think about it. On the other hand, it's not a defense. You know, it's like he made it sound like it was a defense. What did it, you know, and this is one of these things I try to explain to my daughter all the time since she was a little girl, which is there's a huge difference between an explanation and an excuse. Like you can, if you tell me why you, you know, you know, painted on the hardwood floors, uh, I'm glad for the explanation, but that's not an excuse, you know? And, um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, it's just cause you know, this stuff so much better than I do. You've been covering Congress for so long and, you know, I just thought it was fascinating. It's just, it's just so gross, right? I mean, I guess Trump, once Trump was elected, 
there was never, never needed to be an excuse for anything anymore. I mean, he busted through and defied every convention of what was acceptable and what should be withstood and, and tolerated. And so here he is saying to, to, to Mick Mulvaney, what am I going to do with these really principled deficit hawks who want a smaller government and are fighting for freedom, a word that Donald Trump never uses, like ever, um, in, in the vein of, you know, how not a conservative he is. Um, and Mick Mulvaney right away says, oh, no, no, it's all BS. Um, it's no, no, we we they're it, they're culture warriors and they want the spotlight. They want attention. And so it was always about having a platform and using these quote unquote principles um, as, uh, you know, as, as a theme to just beat Paul Ryan or John Boehner or whoever, you know, the Democrats, whatever, um, any president that was in office at the time. And so it's, it's amazing that he admits it. And, and, I, and as you point out, I mean, he's sort of a clever, crafty guy rhetorically. He could sell you swampland, but, um, you know, it's it's such a truth bomb about where we are, and that that was building all along. Trump um, epitomized it, gave it, became the permission structure for performative everything, grievance based everything, culture warrior first, um, and and that is just um, it's just it's just so depressing. It, it, it's just so depressing because think of the ones for whom it actually did matter. It never mattered to Mark Meadows. We've always known that. But I mean, think of how much, you know, Jeff Flake and um, Justin Amash and these people who were very principled despaired. And then think of the people that we know, like Ron Johnson, who was who came in thinking of nothing else but but budget deficits and the debt and and regulations and and, and regulations he shares with Trump. But think of what they gave up um, just to to worship Trump and, and to fear his voters. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And so to admit it about the freedom caucus is it's just so gross. And to think about what Paul Ryan and John Boehner went through at the hands of that. I mean, I want to ask you about Boehner in a second, but yeah, you raise, you raise a point, which we brought up on here a few times. Maybe I've even asked you about it. I can't remember. Um, there's a debate. It's kind of died down now, but it was pretty robust for a while. Um, about the changes in philosophy and personality of so many Republicans in the Trump era, was it that this is who they really were all along? Is this craven sort of, uh, you know, expediency dealing with the, with the, the electorate you have, not the electorate that you want? Um, or did people lose their minds? And I, I don't think there's one explanation that fits everybody. I think you have to take things on a case by case basis. We know that when Liz Cheney had a secret ballot to remain conference chair, she won because first of all, she's a grown up and knows how to do vote counting. Unlike Madison Cawthorn and these jackwads. But, um, uh, she also understands that there are also a lot of closeted normals in the GOP Congress who won't come out. Um, at the same time, you look at Ron Johnson and like, Ron Johnson used to be my favorite example of a normal Republican community leader, businessman thinks he can go to Washington and bring his, his business common sense, Midwestern values and get, and get a control on things and on spending all that stuff. And now he's about one bad night's sleep 
away from talking about how Antifa is going to steal our precious bodily fluids. Um, <laughs> and he cannot get a puppy. <laughs> and I, I think he, but I think he believe, I think he believes a lot of his stuff. There are some people who have who have just straight up lost their minds, and um, and I, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, if you had to parcel it out between the people who are faking being crazy or actually really believe the stuff that they're saying, um, you know, how do you, you know, how many go in column A, column B, you know, in, in your mind? I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is clearly crazy, but she was never normal. So we don't really have to count her. But, you know, some of the Devin Nunes crowd, they've kind of gone nuts. And I'm just kind of curious, like, where do you see the the dividing lines on this transformation? Right. I, I, I mean, so back to the Liz Cheney um, secret ballot, um, those people definitely exist. And, and remember Peter Meyer, who took Justin Amash's seat as a freshman from Michigan, who voted for impeachment, people were coming up to him saying, I want to vote with you and you're right. Uh, but um, there, I'm already facing death threats and I have to vote against impeachment or I'm going to get you know attacked in my driveway or my wife is or whatever. So um, that is going on to an extent. So it is actually very brave and very scary for Adam Kinzinger and uh, Peter Meyer and Liz Cheney to do what they're doing, um, facing uh, the, um, the the base of the party that 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 exists, and and people are still telling them, you know, that that Donald Trump won the election and Joe Biden's you know illegitimate president and everything. I think the person who comes to mind as um, the worst faker and the most clearly obviously anguished is Marco Rubio. Every time you see him trying to strike a Trump MAGA pose, he looks like he's about to cry or he's having gastric distress. And so Ron Johnson, I believe you're right, has gone to the other side. John Cornyn will play on Twitter with some of this stuff. You know, there are varying degrees of this. Um, But um, apparently Doug Collins was once pretty normal. Yeah, yeah. He's a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, and Devin Nunes, I, I'm sorry, that ship sailed a long time ago. I think he's like part pod person. And um, and it is really, um, there's so there's a very strange spectrum about kind of how, um, um, wh- how kind of co- self-corrupted they are and then how... Um, much uh some of them still count themselves as that um that person in the white house and the trump administration who knew if they left someone worse would come in and so they have to stay and they have to win their districts back to come back because there need to be some normal people around the bozos um and and it but i, I again i think that the the Marco Rubio really is the worst person to watch because you can just see that he he never was this person. He's a bad faker. He looks tortured. Um, I don't know what is. I, you know, I guess he's running again, and Trump, he got Trump's endorsement. It's all very ugly. But um, I, I want to go back to Liz Cheney for a second to say that Liz Cheney could very well lose her seat in Wyoming, and what she did, everything to this day, she says, including this week when she said we have to keep talking about insurrection because. 
If we don't, we're going to have a constitutional crisis and never have a peaceful transfer of power again after every single election. And it's going to break the country apart is so risky. And I mean, she's literally giving up everything. I think she could have a bright future if somehow the Republican Party reformed himself. She could be president. But but in Wyoming, she very much was willing to do the right thing and literally give up her seat. And, and, and the jury's still out on that. I mean, Donald Trump and Don Jr. hope to get to coalesce behind one person to, to challenge her in the primary and that it won't be divided um, and, and in a scenario where she could survive. But um, it is like Lindsey Graham, Jonah. I mean, he just won re-election. He says the night of January 6th, like, I'm done with Trump. But then he has to run back and be his big buddy. Like, what is that? Well, I think it's grotesque. You know, I, I, I yeah. agree. I but, mean, but it's nonsensical. Like, I knew we had to do that be, through November 3rd. I mean, there are actual polls where J- Jamie Harrison was, like, nipping at his heels. Of course, Lindsey Graham won handily. But there were actual polls where he looked like he was under threat. So he had to keep up his crazy ruse or his, whatever his thing is that, he, you know, that he wants to be a third Trump son, but or fourth, sorry, Baron. But anyway, the whole thing is um, really strange. And and uh, the idea that they're still crawling around asking for pity with each other, like, I voted for Liz Cheney behind closed doors and I want everything to be normal, but, 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 is like just nuts. So um, on Lindsey Graham, I agree. It's, it's, it's hard for me to quite see because... Like a former senator once explained to me the thing about Lindsey Graham is that he'll do anything he has to do to get reelected because he's got no place else to go, right? He's a bachelor. It's his personal would, life. Yeah, he would call people, he would call other senators like on a Wednesday night at eight and be like, hey, what are you up to? Anything going on? Like he was still in high school calling a buddy. And the idea of going back and hanging a shingle in South Carolina as a lawyer has no appeal to him. He, he wants to be in the mix. And I, I think that's a human thing and I understand it and that's fine. Um, I mean, I think it's a little sad, but I think it's, you know, a normal human thing. But once you get elected, you know, this was a guy who was constantly like taking unpopular positions in the Republican Party as sort of John McCain's wingman. Um, to go back to being a Renfield to Donald Trump after you said you weren't going to do it anymore on January 6th, <laughs> is just kind of grotesque and I, and I don't get it. I mean, I, I don't know why it's necessary. Um, and I don't know like what parties he's not going to be invited to. If that's his, if that's the, his motivation, like you'd think he would want to have the other approach to, to Trump at that point. But it's all very, very strange to me. And, um, but I don't think he's lost his mind. I think he's re- like, he's the example of how Trump has revealed some people's real characters. Um, and I don't think he's gone crazy. I think he is like, he's made it clear of, of the kind of politician he is, who just cares about incumbency and relevance and being on TV. And, um, uh, and that's who probably he always was. We couldn't necessarily see it before, but like Rudy Giuliani has lost his mind. And so they're just different, they're different people who are, you know, different kind of things. Um, all right. So have you read the Boehner book? No. Okay. I've just enjoyed the excerpts and the interviews. Yeah, that's sort of me too. Um, we can do this very quickly, but like, do you think he's giving himself too much of a free pass for, you know, you know, I, I, I think, I think, and I said, I said at the time that he got 
a lot of mistreatment on the right. He wasn't my favorite speaker. He wasn't my favorite politician or any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, and I've talked about this all the time on this podcast, but like for all around that time, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, I would hear constantly from people about how the rhinos and the establishment were running the, the GOP and running the house. And we needed to get rid of the Rockefeller Republicans as if, you know, they hadn't gone out in the Pleistocene era. And, um, <laughs> and they would point to Paul Ryan and, and John Boehner and these guys as squishes and rhinos. And I was like, you do know that these are the most conservative leaders the House GOP has had in American history, or since the phrase conservative meant something in American politics. And, um, you know, most pro-life, most pro-low taxes, limited, all, the, all that stuff. And so I, I have some sympathy for him, but at the same time, it kind of feels like he's giving himself a free pass about how all these Lilliputian crazies you know, tied him down. Um, what do you think? Well, it's so funny because one of the examples of, of the kind of selective memory or revisionist history criticism of his book and the interviews is that Devin Nunes is not mentioned anywhere and they used to be really tight. And so like now he doesn't want to own it. Um, I think that John Boehner um, is he's an institutionalist and he really came up in a different era. And I think he was overwhelmed by the volatile transformation post 2010 of the party and the, and the tea party and everything. I think it was really hard for him, but he, um, he, he needs to take a little more blame. I, 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 he seems to think Ted Cruz is the problem because Ted Cruz radicalized his members into shutting the government down in 2013 or whenever that was. But I mean, John Boehner was a part of that and he didn't have to let it happen. He says at some point, sometimes you just have to let the kids like play with matches and burn it down. Like, Actually, no, um, no. And so the idea that he can go on this tour bashing Trump and then say he voted for him, it's just a lot of it is, um, th- is not great. Uh, but, but John Boehner, you can tell, is just enjoying kind of the the glory, the spotlight and the revenge so much that he can't even, you know, he's blind to that. I, I, I think it's, um, and I think that, that it, I think it really is hard to be John Boehner and Paul Ryan, as you mentioned, not only to be speaker during those, the, those, that time and that turn in the arc, but, but as you said, genuine conservatives, I mean, Paul Ryan spent his years and John Boehner supported him. They've actually known each other, you know, predates, them being in the Congress and leadership together. I think, you know, Paul Ryan was one of his interns or something, but it's, it's, it's a rich history of them. You know, Paul Ryan's reason to be was to reform Medicare and like save, you know, uh, our system and, and break the back of, of entitlement spending. And, and it, it was, it was the main focus of his entire career. And, and then, you have a bunch of people come in and attack him on everything. And then the, the, the group of, of, of guys who really should have his back, right, because they should be wanting the same policy priorities, try to break him as hard as, as you know, they, they tried to break John Boehner. So I have, just as like a Congress watcher, I have some like sort of empathy, sympathy um, cells left for both of them. And I'm an institutionalist and I was upset that they took a beating 
And then it was so awful. I mean, Paul Ryan was right to not want the job, but then again, he couldn't say no. And, but yeah, John Boehner's, um, I'm happy that he's enjoying himself, but that I have many questions. And, and, you know, to say that, that you knew that Trump was essentially a threat, but you had to, you know, you voted for him anyway. And like, he could have said so much about Trump a long time ago. And as someone who still is like, losing sleep over the first impeachment and and the long-term damage to, to this country from Donald Trump, you know, that horrifies me. Yeah. I mean, I, to use an, uh, a, a family friendly aviary, um, euphemism, uh, it's like he's decided that he has no more ducks to give. And, um, and that's a, that's an enjoyable thing to watch someone do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a well-disciplined honed argument. It's just, you're just letting it go. You know, you're letting one duck after another fly, as it were. Okay, so, uh, uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but we have to turn to the most pressing issue of the day. Um, how is Chief? So, he is perfect, of course. Um, but Chief is, is a golden retriever puppy. puppy. Golden retriever puppy, he's nine weeks. We picked him up in Missouri, on Saturday, the 17th, we drove him home on, on, we arrived home last Tuesday, the 20th with, um, greeting my neighbors with red scratches on my face from the <laughs> puppy. I've only rescued dogs. So I've never had a puppy. It is an entirely new experience. There are only two channels so far, cocaine and coma. I don't know when we're going to have like a third channel option. Um, but there is, um, there's a lot of work to be done in getting your puppy to actually like sit in your lap and be your friend when they're not just totally passed out. Their natural instinct is to leave you, go around the room, um, eat hinges, eat firewood, um, break things, and to play if you give them a bone or a toy on their own. And when they, if you put them in your lap, they think that you want them to bite you. Cause that's what they do, you know? So that is what we're working on right now. I, I, it just, it, it's, it's a real time sucker because you have to invest the time to, to, to give him the consistency and the repetition of you're supposed to lick and not bite and, um, and all that, but he is so happy. He's already, um, running to his crate to, to go to sleep, you know, in the middle of the day on his own. He's, um, he's, he's, fearless. Um, he doesn't seem to have any problems and he's just so adorable. It's beyond belief. He's going to start puppy class in a month, but I think I'm going to get someone to come over and just do a little like with my children and my husband, um, reinforcing. And, um, he's got a lot of trips planned. He's going to go to deep Creek at the end of May. He's going to go to Connecticut in July. He's going to go to outer banks in August, and then he's going to get fixed. Mm. I know. Um, but he's so n nine weeks is tough, right? Cause like 12 yeah. weeks is kind of like normally when you get a puppy and they're still like looking for mommy a little bit. And, um, he luckily Jonah didn't, I want all the time back that I spent in anticipatory anxiety about him wailing for his family. The first couple of nights I was told about this and I read about it and he actually didn't. That was the one lucky thing. He came with little mommy scented, you know, a, a blanket from his pen, and, um, he had issues like wanting to play all night and knock this. I had a soft crate cause we were traveling and knocking it down and stuff, but he did not wail for his family. He just is a spaz. 
So he, he definitely thinks he's supposed to eat doors and furniture legs. And so we literally, he's never out of our sight. I mean, someone yeah. is on a shift with him at all times. Um, uh, yeah, no, the, you say cocaine and coma. Um, I always say that when puppies are sleeping, all they're doing is recharging their mischief batteries. Um, but, uh, uh, um, one thing we, I did with Zoe. I mean, if like, if you can't get them to chew on dog toys, cause sometimes they just don't like, they, they don't want to, it's like, you know how, like when you have a baby, they don't want to play with the thing they're supposed to play with. They want to play with like your car keys or whatever, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I used to do this thing with Zoe. It's it's annoying as hell as sound, but it really worked for a while where I would put empty water bottles in an old sock and then tie the sock and they like the crinkle sound and the crunchy. That's an awesome one. So you that, give it a try. It'll last a little he while. Has you don't a want to have toy it that he loves. It's, it's, so he's good with his toys. It's just that he realizes after a few minutes a toy and then he needs something new. Right. So, but I'm right. going to try that. Actually, my babies loved empty water bottles. They love to chew them and they love to crinkle them and they love to bang them. Empty water hmm. bottles are very valuable items. Um, and, um, um, and for listeners in the show notes, I will link to the pictures of Chief that I put on Twitter so that um, you can see that he actually is right in that wheelhouse of the platonic ideal of what a golden retriever puppy is, is supposed to be. I mean, it's, it's well, crazy. Golden retriever puppies. I mean, golden retrievers in general, I have such mixed feelings about because on the one hand, they're kind of like the Stepford dog. I mean, they're just, <laughs> I know. they're so pretty, you know, yeah. and they're kind of like the, the dumb blondes of the dog world. And there's yeah. some smart ones, but there are a lot of goofy goldens yeah. on the other end. And they're so popular, but you know, they're kind of, and I'm not denigrating them. It's sort of like everyone's f the most popular ice cream flavor in America is vanilla. It's not because it's anybody's favorite. It's because it's everybody's second favorite. It's everybody's, yeah. everyone likes golden retrievers and, right. um, and they should cause they're adorable. And, and, um, but I'm, I'm much less passionate about this than I used to be because now I think the real scourge of Western civilization when it comes to dogs is doodle proliferation. Oh, totally. My, my family, we have a conversation running in my family about this all the time. And they're, in, and I, they're individual nice dogs. I, I, whenever yeah. I say these things, I'm not condemning the actual dog because yeah. I meet lots of doodles are a sweet dog. So they're just too many doodles. This you know, just, it is amazing. It's Bernie Doodle and Golden Doodle. And it's like yeah. replaced the entire canine species as the only um, dog of choice. You're right. It's a trend. It's, it's you know, but they, they are, yeah, they are super cute. But I understand you're kind of, re it's like the, the, the argument for golden retriever is maybe you need to not have a golden retriever because everyone has a golden retriever. I, I've had thoughts like that too. Um, but my family decided and I had no choice. Um, I want to know how Zoe is doing. Oh, so Zoe is doing better. Um, I would say she's doing well. For, I mean, I talked about this a little bit already, but so Zoe had, um, three teeth taken out and it has seems to have cured her dragon breath. So clearly, <laughs> Okay. Uh, I mean, her breath was, her breath was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, like if it was any worse, it'd be like opening the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones. I mean, you just, you just melt. <laughs> and, um, so clearly like whatever infection she had was, was dealing with that. And fortunately it's none of her, it's none of her real teeth. You know, it's none of the ones she uses to chew on or the, the I guess they're incisors or whatever. It's none of those. Yeah it's those tiny little ones right in the front bottom, or at least two of them were there. So you have to actually look pretty closely to see that, you know, she is, um, 
that she is now sporting something closer to the dentistry that is associated with the parts of South Carolina and Georgia that she hails from. But we don't need to get too much in the details on that. Um, but it was it was brutal taking her to the vet because um, I, I don't know if you use friendship, but like they don't allow people inside. And no um, one unless, does right now. Yeah, and so we're sitting outside for a good half hour waiting for them to come out and get her. And you know, one of the reasons I hate vets going to the vet is that dogs pick up on the smell of fear from other dogs and. One of the reasons why kennels are such terrible places for rescues is because all these dogs are just sitting in an olfactory stew of other dogs' fear and anxiety, and it triggers all sorts of things in them. And she was getting all both really defensive and growly at other dogs, and also very puppy and like wrapping herself around my legs. And you know, why are you doing this to me? Why are we here? And um, it was pretty brutal. And then partly because she was so stoned when she came out, she wouldn't look me in the eye. And, I read that. I was horrified. Yeah. And I, I know I anthropomorphize dogs too much, but it was impossible for me not to conclude that she was done with me. And so, um, but now she's fine. She's doing well. Pippa, of course, got sick over the weekend at a sympathy pains for Zoe or something and was quite a mess, but now she's doing well too. So our canines are, are, are on the mend. I'm so glad that's behind you. That's it's just awful because they sense the fear of other dogs, but they sense that you feel guilty and traumatized too. The whole thing is just a, it's a pile of pain. Yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, so that, you know, I used to have a different opinion about pit bulls. Uh, I used to think that they really were the problem people make them out to be. And I do think you need to be a gro- a serious dog person to have certain dogs and pit bulls are one of them just because they require. Oh yeah. That, you know, there's some like I. There's something my wife worries about constantly is the number of people who got COVID dogs for their anxiety and for their loneliness. And now that the pandemic is winding down, they're going to be terrible dog owners. And I worry that we're going to see a big surge into the kennels because people are like, well, now that I can go out, I don't want to be tied down by a dog, and that's going to that could be really terrible. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but I think it'll happen a little bit. But like with pit bulls. One of the reasons why pit bulls, a lot of it, you get a lot of pit bull problems is that other dog owners get really nervous around pit bulls and their dogs pick up on your signals of nervousness and get defensive. And the pit bull picks up on that combination of things and gets aggressive. And then you're off to the races. And anyway, um, that makes a lot of sense. But I actually, I, I now I'm like worried for Jessica, but I, I share her anxiety about the pandemic. Uh, pet adoption explosion that a lot of non-dog owners got dogs who are not cats and are not supposed to be left alone. And then they were never left alone in the pandemic and now they're dependent. And it's, it, it's, um, it, yeah, I, I have the same I mean, anxiety. About pa- this. Pandemic dog owning lifestyle is very different than real life dog owning yes. lifestyle. And yes. I would like to think that the vast majority of people who got a dog in the pandemic have fallen so in love with it that they'll be responsible dog owners. But a lot, also a lot of those dogs were raised in the first year of their life. If they got puppies without ever having to experience long-term separation anxiety, because there are humans oh, that, yeah. always around. So it's a yeah. problem on both ends, you know? No, that, that that's, I'm afraid for our dogs who are from dog people, yeah. um, not spending enough time with us a year from now. And then I'm concerned about people who were, who didn't understand what dog ownership was transitioning out of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, um, it's, I don't worry about chief. I know that <laughs> Thank you. You don't he have will to be fine. The only thing I think that chief needs 
is another puppy. Um, oh no! <laughs> but, you know, on no, the one hand, Chief needs a play date with the girls in a few months when he can control himself, but he cannot have another um, housemate. I think um, anybody who thinks AB should get a second dog should say so in the <laughs> comments of this podcast, and we will let democracy decide. Um, you know, on the one hand, two dogs is geometrically more uh, dogs than one dog. Um, right. But they also they also get to kill time with each other, which yeah. is not, nice, you know. I think I can see I can see the argument for like two or three years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, he'll, Chief will still be young. He'll be quite. But pretty, not I mean, right away. You know. But I mean, you it, didn't seek out Pippa. It was like a. It was a series of decisions, right? A family. Yeah, she's essentially a rescue. My f- mother and father. I know she was. Your, yeah. Had her, and my father-in-law always loved Springer Spaniels. He had lots of different kinds of dogs. I mean, a lot of the dogs my wife had growing up were basically strays that just wandered into their yard and they started feeding. And um. But uh, the Spaniels, he would take bird hunting, and Pippa comes from a very good bird-dog breeder, either in Alaska or in South Dakota. I can't remember which. And um, and we got her because my mother-in-law was having health problems, my father-in-law was having health problems, and Pippa was just... Pippa's crazy. I mean, Pippa's legit nuts. People don't appreciate this about her because on Twitter, she translates, translates as this wise sweet-faced dog and in real life she's I mean I always say I have you know one dog that should be like Daryl from The Walking Dead and the other one should be the dumbest daughter on Downton Abbey and that's Pippa and um anyway when we got her home Zoe did not want her here and that was incredibly stressful and I don't think you'd have that problem with Chief I think Chief would be like <gasps> another golden Yay! Yeah. And that would no, be you're right. It w- I don't think it would be the same transition. And when you and Jessica described that integration process, I like couldn't sleep for two nights. It, that that like dog on dog conflict in my own home is like my worst nightmare. But no, I think yeah, I think Chief could take it in, in a few years. It's just the sort of like empty nest transition of the next couple of years that we're going to try to see. I worry about you the same way I worry about Jess. That if 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 you won the lottery, if if we won the lottery. Fast forward five years, and you, yours would probably be in Connecticut. Jess's would be in Montana, but you'd have some large piece of land with a dangerous number of dogs on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that and polite so, company should not be aware of. Yeah, no, so exactly. We just, yeah. we just hide and, and see fewer and fewer people, and just become crazier and crazier and hairier and hairier. I, I think that's you know, I, I think that's in the cards. Anyway. Uh, congrats to Chief. If you want me to post more pictures, I would be happy to post more yes, pictures. Yes, I'll send you some freshies later today. Definitely. The, 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 I'll do it as promotion for the podcast. I'll say, hey, AB was on and, and we talked about Chief and here's Chief. And it's win-win because the demand for puppy golden retrievers is very high on Twitter. And it doesn't seem to be <laughs> I noticed. Soon. Um, and so uh, thanks again for coming on. Lovely to have Thank you. Thank you for having me me jonah it was so much fun i'm always honored to be with you and to be with your listeners thank you so much okay so ab has left the the studio and um um as you can tell i always like talking to her and even when i'm uh, brain addled as i am and uh lots of other stuff we could have talked about but you know you can only talk about so much 
And, you know, we had to get the most important issue of the day, which is, you know, golden retriever puppy. Cause you know, even though there's no video here, that's, you know, just where I come from. Um, that shouldn't shock anybody. Um, again, check tune in tomorrow for the dispatch live event. Um, uh, we'll put in the show notes here a link to it, and I'm sure there'll be something on the site that you can find it. And if you're a dispatch member, you've probably gotten a notification about it already. Um, looking forward to that. I promise I will be considerably more sober than I was at the end of the um, Mike Gallagher podcast. But that doesn't necessarily mean sober, as we know. One can fall quite short of that benchmark and uh, and, and and still be well lubricated. And, um, and I guess I'll save for the solo pod, solo remnant on Friday. Um, if it still seems like it's just not ancient history, um, uh, the kerfuffle of asininity, uh, aimed at me on Twitter in recent days, uh, just to be clear, I really think it is entirely asinine and I'll be cryptic about it. Um, so that people will tune in if you don't know what I'm talking about, but I apologize for nothing. I'm a hundred percent right. And I am uh, entirely, um, um, unrepentant in every regard. Um, when it comes to this, I got all sorts of other things. I'm not a hundred percent right on and I am, um, plenty repentant on, but this isn't it. And, um, other than that, uh, if please subscribe to the dispatch tomorrow's G file, uh, will have the quality of having been written by me and maybe even slightly more attractive than that. And, uh, keep hope alive and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.